Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on a uh, Friday morning broadcast. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning. I'm glad to see that you were able to get up. It was a wonderful <laughs> tribute to you last night at the TABC dinner, along with uh, other great honorees. So uh, it's a pleasure to have been able to at least be there for a while. Well, I thank you for that. Yeah, most people, uh, they, they couldn't believe you found the time to show up to a dinner in the Jewish community. My gosh, that was so nice of you. Well, especially in New Jersey, having to get a visa and everything to get there, and, uh, but it was uh, well worth it. He's kidding, folks. He's kidding. Uh, I take this opportunity, and I apologize for not mentioning it last week. Uh, you and your wife have become great grandparents. Can you believe my it? Wife. My wife. Yeah. Oh, only your wife. <laughs> Can you believe it? You are great grandparents. Well, my f- son has become a grandfather, which is something I can't believe. And, uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> if by uh, virtue of that, I guess uh, I always thought I was a great grandfather, but. Now they say it's formalized. You know, you but always. Thank you. We should only have some. Yeah, hey, Amen. You always uh, have a unique perspective, especially when it comes to uh, generations in the Jewish tradition. So I'm sure that all the, not just the emotion, but all the significance of this has not been lost on you. I'm sure you've thought about it many times. In fact, I continue to reference a conversation I had with somebody a few months ago where they reminded me that in their class, when they were growing up in the 50s or 60s, there was no such thing as a grandparent. The rarity was they were the only kids in the in the uh, in their grade that had grandparents. Most kids didn't realize you could have a grandparent, and you get my point in terms of his. You know, we his were just uh, talking about the same thing. Several people came to me and said made the same point about you know their own personal experiences, as was my case. I, you know, I lost all my grandparents and in the Shoah and the. The idea of having grandparents alone, great grandparents, was uh, was a very unique one for for most of the people of that generation and our generation too, because of you know unfortunately what happened. So part it is in a comma still. It is the obligation to rebuild, but it's not because of a negative motivation. It's the positive motivation that I'm Israel High and that we've come back from the depths and and every new life is is so precious and we should value it and remember it and continue to see to it that the uh, Royal grows. Yeah, I'm mean to that. And I and, and sort of on the same topic, uh, the other night we were at the Beit Road dinner and Carolyn Glick was speaking and anybody who reads her regularly knows that I don't know if doom and gloom is the uh, proper way to put it, but it you know there's there's always many challenges that she's pointing out and many different things that are uh uh, that, that are facing the Jewish world and facing the Jewish people in Israel on a regular basis. You're very familiar with all of them. And she concluded her remarks, which I thought was remarkable, <laughs> coming from her, on such a positive note, how we are living in a generation that no other Jews, maybe since the time of, I don't know, the First Temple era, uh, have lived with a state of Israel, with the tremendous hope, with a, a strong presence in so many areas of the diaspora, about to get to the point where the majority of Jews are living in the Holy Land. And, uh, I mean, her point was that, you know, she, she continues to write and to, um, uh, you know, offer suggestions because there's finally a time where offering suggestions could lead to some results. There's finally a time that there could be some influence from the Jewish community, uh, you know, to government officials and others around the world. And I thought that that was, you know, for those of us, who sometimes wonder about our little sessions together and how you know how difficult they sound sometimes. 
I think it's important to remind everybody the era we're living in and just how hopeful things really are. And I try every week to remind people of the good stuff, the good things that are happening. You have to face reality, and sometimes reality doesn't seem good, but if you don't face it, then you can't deal with it. When you confront it, then you understand that there are answers, there are pathways out of it, and what it becomes more clear what we can do. It doesn't mean we can always determine the outcome, but we can always influence, we can always try, we're obligated to try. And the fact is that there is always good news. You know, if you look at the, Syri- the um, Saudi-Iranian uh, conflict, I mean, there are a lot of uh, things that one could point to and say that this is, has a positive impact on Israel's security, its relationship with Many of the Sunni states would be improved. The, the Egyptian ambassador uh, uh, has returned to Israel after an absence since uh, 2012, when Morsi withdrew the ambassador with the Muslim Brotherhood president, who served for a short period. And now there's a full-time ambassador sitting in, in Tel Aviv again. The, um, there are many things that uh, we can cite, including always the amazing historical discoveries including a Canaanite fortress and where they were just trying to lay the foundation for a new building. And as you know, in Israel, whenever you do this, this was not in Jerusalem, right. uh, you have to do first an archaeological exploration to make sure there's nothing there. And, of course, they found amazing finds. So it's happening all the time. Our past and our future come together. Yeah, no question about it. I'm glad we're able to point that out and remind everybody about it. I hope they take the opportunity to remind their children and grandchildren, and now I could say great-grandchildren, about it as sure. well. Uh, why didn't I think that the um, that the statement that uh, Martin Indig attributed to Benjamin Netanyahu was as, was as outrageous as the general media felt? The uh, Right. I, I, think, I, I think that there are two points here. One is, as you know, they've done a, a, a review of the video of the funeral, and it shows that Indic was never sitting next to Netanyahu, and never were the two of them standing together. So he has already amended it to say, well, it didn't take place there. The comment, it took place at the Knesset. The next day, at, right. At the uh, at a memorial, I think. Right. Uh, and uh, either, I don't know if it was the, the next day. Um, and they're saying that that is not true either, and that it wasn't said. You know, it, it, I think that you're making an important point about why would it be outrageous to say that if if the assassin believed that he was uh, taking, uh, you know, affecting Israel's future and for, did it for as a political motive, and in fact the polls did show that Rabin would have been defeated by Netanyahu, and he may have just said simply if the guy was trying to achieve a political end, he right. did the reverse. Right. So that could have taken place, but even now there isn't the evidence, and the Prime Minister's office issued a very strong statement saying it didn't happen. And it gets picked up because, number one, they love to, of course, the media loves to knock Netanyahu, and if it appears, you know, that he would make, in that setting, that would be considered, what would be considered a crass remark. Yeah, understood. Um, yeah, and it did, I, I, you may be right that it wasn't the next day, but it was right around the time of the funeral was when they were uh, literally waiting for the uh, uh, body to come to the Knesset to lie in state. So it was right, right, right there within that day or so. Um, the, the the Tel Aviv terrorist, if we could call him that, from last Friday is still on the loose? He's still on the loose, although they seem to have ended the search in Tel Aviv itself. Um, as you know, they, they believe now that the murder of the, the Arab cab driver was uh, part of his escape. 
the question is where he's hiding, uh, in what community, had, did he make it across a border, which is unlikely. So it may take some time. It was something they said even before um, to apprehend him. They arrested his father because there appeared to have been com- conversations with, between the father and the son uh, it, around the time of the attack. And the um, and they ultimately will find him. The question is, will he attack again? What, what toll will be taken? And do we call him a terrorist or not? After a week now, where we're not sure what the motive was, and is a terrorist. No, the motive in this case, nobody has seen anything else. That they didn't say it was criminal. He didn't work for the place. He wasn't a you know a, a, a too often labeled disgruntled employee. Uh, you know, or the post office syndrome. Right. This is uh, there's no evidence, but to conclude that this was part of the of, of the incitement, uh, the result of some of the incitement and the stimulation, and there is evidence in some of the stuff that they found. So until they actually capture him, I guess it'll be hard to know the final uh, outcome. Could you describe for us the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran before this week? Terrible. And I think that that what happened is is exaggerated a lot in the media because this has been an ongoing battle. And as you know, that for years, even from the beginning before the the uprising, but certainly since it, I said that if you don't see this as part of the Sunni Shiite battle of the thousand years standing, then you're missing the point. And that's exactly what's true here. This is a battle between the two behemoths of the uh, of one of the Sunni movement, uh, meaning Saudi Arabia, and one of the Shiites, in this case Iran, who have been battling. They're they're involved in active wars on opposite sides in Syria, in Yemen, um, we believe in Sudan, and many other places where they're in conflict. The the um, they they are also uh, in conflict over in some instances like the ISIS in in Sinai. And you've seen how many of the Sunni countries have fallen in line behind Saudi Arabia by lowering or uh, recalling the status, lowering the status of the diplomatic relationship, or actually withdrawing the ambassadors. So this has been ongoing for a long time, and and they've been sniping, and Saudi Arabia has been accusing Iran of of trying to uh, undermine the regime, which it wants to, and. You remember after the the riot that took I don't know a couple thousand lives in in um, in, uh, in Mecca at the when they had the Hajj, right. a, a, Iran right away jumped in and said they can't be trusted with it. They wanted to be put. They wanted an international investigation, and they wanted to be put on the committee that will oversee it because this is a direct challenge to the legitimacy of Saudi Arabia as the protector of the holy places. They are undermining them in Katif, which is an eastern province, eastern area of Saudi Arabia, where you have the bulk of their energy resources, and uh, and trying to undermine Bahrain, because that is a stepping stone to Saudi Arabia. It's 14 miles across a waterway. It's maybe more than you wanted, but people have to know how complex this relationship is. And the fact that you had a blow-up, also uh, one has to look at the domestic ramifications that that he, they killed, they executed 47 people, 45 or 6 or so were, were Sunni extremists, Al-Qaeda and others who had threatened the regime. So to satisfy the people, they, they execute you know, a high-profile Shiite as well. Um, the, uh, the Iranians 
similarly use this to rally their uh, constituency and their people and um, you know threaten uh, do a lot of sable rattling uh, but we haven't seen uh, a real action taken so the executions which had their uh, have is a story in and of themselves we have to remember that that Iran is executing many more people the average of three a day every day including hundreds of Kurds Shiites Sunnis um, and uh, let alone the members of the you know Christians Jews and others so this is a very complex situation in terms of its deep roots in the Sunni Shiite uh, battle it's a battle of hegemony and control of the Middle East it's going to go on it's going to be hard to resolve you may get a papering over you may get a reduction of temp uh, the temperature for a temporary basis but this is very fundamental and and then you have the launch in North Korea right. of the uh, test supposedly of a uh, hydrogen bomb in the past whenever there have been nuclear explosions the reports are that Iranians were there when the Iran launches the missiles the ballistic missile tests uh, North Koreans are there there is a close relationship both Pakistan and Iran based their missiles on the Nodong, which is the North Korean missile and the um, you know there is a, a a much more complex relationship here that goes beyond just the, the immediate region and I think we and it, it is no coincidence that they would do the launch and the the uh, the missile test right before the North Koreans did did the uh, supposed hydrogen bomb though it's not not everybody's convinced that they actually uh, they actually did it so there and and you know the Saudis supposedly bombed the Iranian embassy in Yemen right they said they're going to investigate it it's very complicated, but it's not new. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. So you've always described the uh, the current Middle East um, as tribal. Uh, what's the word you always use? Uh, ethnic. Uh, tri- what am I thinking of? Um you know, broken broken down in ethnic groups, basically. Yes, in tribal, right, right tribal. tribal. And so, 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 what is the breakdown now? <laughs> if Saudi Arabia and Iran are on different sides, so who who joins each side now in what potentially could be a real um, a, a, a conflict? You know that, that that finally the entire world will recognize is just a tribal one, right? I mean, that's I know well, that this is a lot like the Iraq Iranian war. You know, where both sides can win and. Uh, be better off perhaps but destabilizing the region right now is a very dangerous thing saudi arabia i think will be driven closer to israel because of it you know we've seen some who else might be besides them well let me give you an example of how complicated this is and that is china why because the uyghurs in in the xinjiang province which china is accused of having support from the wahhabis in saudi arabia uh, who are also an extremist uh, group, uh, and they have this East uh, Turkestan independence movement, and they've attacked, they've had some large-scale terrorist attacks. The the, the Chinese government has gone in there. Uh, members of the royal family, it's believed, provide funding, and the government, the Saudi government, can't stop them or won't stop them. But this is for for uh, a ramification for China and China looks then at this uh, at the explosions that are going on, on there and say well this is 
it only underscores their uh, apprehension about um, you know about the, this moment. So it, it can have broad ramifications. It goes to the Sudan, Djibouti, Somalia, into Africa. It goes, of course, Jordan, Morocco, um, Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait, all of them on the Saudi side. Iran, the, remember, Shiites are a much smaller group. Uh, the Sunnis are the dominant uh, uh, Muslim group. Um, they have they will enlist some countries uh, on their side as well, Iraq being one, but they don't have that many allies. Turkey, obviously, is, is Sunni and goes with the other side, and many of the countries will want to be left out of uh, getting too integrally, uh, become too integral apart, but they could take advantage. And now the money release that's due to come, as hmm. Secretary Kerry said yesterday, maybe even in a few days, that they will reach the... Um, the agreement, the conclusion of the agreement, uh, uh, that you would have the release of tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, ultimately, to Iran to carry out. People are, are urging now that they hold up the money. You saw all the initiatives in Congress. And by the way, note that they're coming from Democrats, most of whom were, were key supporters of the legislation in, in the summer, uh, the Iran, the Jopoa deal are the ones who are leading now the fight, including Steny Hoyer, who's a Democratic leader in the House, um, calling for additional sanctions and for actions to be taken because of so, uh, Iran's launching of the two missiles, the ballistic missile tests, September-October, for which so far they've been no, there's no price. The, the administration announced sanctions and then withdrew from them, saying that they, they're not ready to be implemented, that they're studying them. Uh, the members of Congress have say that we've been sending the wrong signal because the countries, the region, look at this and say such a blatant violation. Then they fired missiles, rockets over the USS Truman, an American aircraft carrier in the Straits of Hormuz last week. And they're saying if there's no consequence, then America's image, the, the, the paper tiger accusations, all these things come to the fore. So it's interesting that it's Democrats who are by and large taking the lead on demanding new sanctions and and tougher enforcement against Iran. Every one of the countries you mentioned that Sunni dominated was was a, was certainly against the deal with Iran, right? For them, Iran is the greatest danger. Uh, they they uh, some of them get apoplectic about it because Iran is working to undermine the regimes in a lot of these countries. They provide the backing, for instance, you know, Hamas, Hezbollah, right. all these groups won't exist without the, the Iranian backing. And Hamas now is aiding ISIS, the the, the ISIS affiliate in, um, as they call themselves, the Sinai province, in the Sinai, which is working against the government of uh, of Egypt and also seeking to establish itself as a, um, a terrorist base. And we see that the growth of Al Qaeda and other groups as well. But the the Iranians are involved through through money provided and weapons. Uh, to the Hamas, as they do to Hezbollah, the 100,000 missiles that Hezbollah has are, are from Iran, and the, the continued efforts to resupply them. And then, you know, we know that, that Iran is active in, in Central Asia, countries like uh, Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, Serbia, elsewhere. The Iranian tentacles reach out very far, even to South America, where we estimate they have thirty to 40,000 
agents. They, they doubled the number of diplomatic missions, opened 80 new cultural centers. So their reach is global today. And their relationship with Russia as well is significant. That's a, another thing where, which is, again, very complicated because it's a mixed relationship. Russia has its own Islamic problem, big population growth, low population growth of the, of the Russians. They, um, they are buying off the uh, Muslims and certainly Iran uh, with their relationship. They make a lot of money off the building of the nuclear reactors for Iran at Bushehr and now three or four more. Uh, the, the Russian involvement, the weapons, etc., that are being flown in on two flights a day into Syria are being paid for by Iran. Uh, Turkey and Iran and Russia, you know, are heated up. Therefore, Iran's role, another thing that Iran can then exploit so again, it's it's so complicated. There are another dozen factors. Then you have to think about the flow of migrants and what these of, of Muslim immigrants into Europe. And what this will mean for Iran's ability to to continue its nefarious activities, and it doesn't take that much money to do it. They've been able to support Hamas and Hezbollah even with uh, you know its economy in tatters and. Even if they get the money, we have to remember with the price of oil as low as it is, and with the Iranians, the, the Saudis, pumping more and more in order to keep the price low to break the American fracking industry. But I think more immediately, it's to keep the pressure on the Iranian regime, which is dependent on the oil income for you know its budget. Hamas is, as you just described, do we consider Iran now to be a sponsor of ISIS or not? It's not a sponsor of ISIS. Uh, but we've seen that Hamas has developed a relationship with the, with the, what is a, a self-proclaimed affiliate of ISIS in the Sinai. That's because uh, obviously they they uh, they don't like Sisi. Egypt has has always traditionally been uh, an enemy. It's the largest Arab country, and with the crackdown by Sisi against the Islamists, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is. Uh, you know the mother of of a lot of the Islamist groups. It, um, it you know makes all the more reason why they would want to undermine his regime. Um, the United States. It, well, you've always pointed out that while you know everyone concentrates on Iran, North Korea, and other places and other countries, you know, are doing things that just get no attention. Obviously, the I'll I'll ask you more about the bomb test uh, in a minute. But with that in mind. Do we spend too much time then here in the U.S., especially with the presidential campaign focusing on, so, focusing on it so much, really obsessed with ISIS and what people will do and how they're going to handle the war on ISIS, etc., when in reality there are so many other dangerous situations, including Iran, you know, most prominent among them, that need some attention? Well, for us and for the United States as a whole, uh, there are issues that are uh, of uh, greater importance, meaning Iran. Right. Iran is more important than ISIS. Right. Iran is the fulcrum of, of international and global terrorism. It is, as I said, given the outreach of the reach into Africa also, uh, a global threat, including in the United States and in every virtually every other country. The uh, rehabilitation of Iran will, will carry the threat that they will be able to, they will be in a position to greatly enlarge their efforts, providing more weapons, providing more funding to terrorist uh, operations. There's no indication that they back off. So, yes, ISIS is very obvious, and, it's, it, and the blatant nature of its cruelty 
the fact that it advertises through videos the executions and the, the brutal nature of those executions of beheadings it, attracts people's attention. But they've had setbacks. They're, they're, they are not the global danger that Iran is. And uh, the, the lack of determination in the beginning to really face off against ISIS and to deal with it when it was much smaller before they had tens of thousands of foreign recruits, uh, etc., we pay the price for that now, and it's understandable why they get the visibility, because, you know, the more brutal you are, the more visible you are, the more you're going to get attention. But Iran is by far the greater danger. And look what everybody is focusing on, the debates, the campaign. ISIS is the, is the big mantra. Um, I saw Hezbollah attacked the IDF uh, in the Golan and near Sheba Farms, and they, they didn't do any damage, thank God. Nobody was hurt, but you know, we have to remember that they're trying to encroach in the Golan, and that includes ISIS, but also Iranian, the IRGC, and Iranian-backed groups. Uh, so Israel, for Israel, all of this has a lot of ramifications. And, you know, the, the disintegration of governments, uh, one, one could say that it will be in Israel's interest to see Assad fall. But you notice that the Israelis don't talk about that because for them the, the chaos that could follow, the total chaos, could mean that groups and and some of those who are fighting in in Syria and focused on fighting the Syrian army or or for or against will turn their focus then towards uh, towards Israel. Right. It's going to be hard for Israel to stay out of all this as all this is going on. <laughs> well, they're not out of it. They 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 are still going to Hezbollah. They're still you know they're protecting their borders as long as nobody bothers them. They are not going to do anything. Right. But they they work closely with the Egyptian government uh, about the. Gaza and about the the joint borders, the security of the border, and and Egypt's needs. Uh, they work closely with the government of Jordan to, because they both uh, face the dangers, both of ISIS and Iran, and the attempts to undermine the governments. So for Israel, this is a multi-front uh, danger. Why do you suspect that uh, it was not really a hydrogen bomb test in North Korea? Only because some of the scientists who have assessed it, it, it it's not that it, I, I said it wasn't, I said it hasn't been confirmed right. that it is, because they, they have to measure the radiation to see whether this was in fact, uh, maybe it was a small hydrogen bomb, maybe it was uh, something less than a, a hydrogen bomb, but the fact that they announced it, and generally their announcements have uh, been verified, uh, would we want to believe or assume that it is? It was in fact a hydrogen bomb test, which is then an escalation that makes it brings it to a higher level. The fact that they are moving in that direction, and obviously this is uh, has grave implications for the region, for the for the Chinese even, but also for Japan, or even more for Japan um, and uh, and uh, South Korea. Uh, it has it would be a very significant development, and it's an unstable regime. And you can transfer this technology. You can even transfer weapons. They can sell these things. You saw what Agu Khan uh, did from Pakistan, and uh, uh, you know that could be replicated here, and that obviously would be very serious. The announcement might be more important to North Koreans than the actual test. <laughs> uh, that's true. You're right. The that's PR, true. you know, for and propaganda the, purposes. Right. Yes. And uh, U.S. reaction to this was there was there any official U.S. reaction to it? Well, they said they're studying it to trying to determine what it was, but uh, obviously, United States and North Korea are at odds and have been at 
in conflict situation for a long time. But there never seems to be strong condemnation. And, and the, the sanctions, we lifted the sanctions. We're not imposing that. And they're the most sanctioned nation in the world. And yet they, they continue to do this. And, and they ask the, you know, America's afraid, I think, of, of the Chinese reaction or of other reactions now with the, if this, in fact, was a, a, a new a hydrogen bomb. I think uh, the world has to look at collectively, not just the United States, but it only happens if the U.S. leads that they will have additional sanctions. Anniversary of the Charlie Hebdo attack yesterday, tomorrow on the secular calendar, the anniversary of the hypercashier uh, terrorist attack in France. First of all, it, it, it is interesting, especially after our France experience, it is interesting that... Um, that people are under this impression that such a significant number of French Jews are leaving to go to Israel. Now, I know that the, the numbers, you know, do bear that out to an extent, but, you know, on an annual basis, still 85 to 90% of the community is staying and, uh, you know, obviously remains such an important, um, you know, Jewish presence in the diaspora. Um, Anything different in this year? I mean, uh, is the only thing we can really point out when it comes to French jury and maybe European jury uh, in general, is that they're just, you know, leaving at any opportunity? Is there any other observation a year later? Well, the numbers that are leaving, that are formally making Aliyah, are significant. They're up. It's it's a little over seven thousand for last for this past year, but the um, but we have to look also to numbers who've gone to other countries. Mm. Canada, Australia, United States, uh, elsewhere. It's not just Israel. So right. That augments the number considerably, mm. and it, it is still a small percentage, and nobody is looking for a mass exodus or encouraging a mass exodus. It has to be planned. Israel is taking steps, and there's a lot of pressure in Israel to build up the capacity to be able to absorb these people properly. The, um, uh, and the situation is it's only deteriorated. The influx of, of the migrants uh, and the, many of them carrying anti-Semitic, anti-Israel attitudes and the manifestations that we've seen, Sweden, Denmark, all these other countries, and certainly uh, Belgium, which has become a fulcrum for it, and, and the planning basis center for the attacks that took place against uh, France, and the, certainly the most recent French, uh, the, the attacks in France in November. Right. Um, so I think that the only, the road ahead is all, can only uh, be, be see more immigration and and hopefully most of them to Israel. And they get all the attention. Uh, there, there are other European countries going through the same thing, or you would say not as severe, or because the population is not as large, so it's not as significant. What would you say? I would say Belgium, the situation is as bad, if not worse, and it's a, but it's a much smaller scale. Right. The French population is the largest in Europe. Uh, certainly England is not exempt from it. Uh, in, in some cases, the governments are doing more, and the French government can't be faulted in this case uh, for the response to it. I think about what they did before, perhaps, and, and some of their own attitudes, but they did try to take preventative measures which were not wise and only exacerbated the problem, creating these... Uh, councils, and, and they're going to close 160 mosques now. And, and they did this once before, and so then the imams create their own, or when they deported a lot of the imams who spoke in English, now everybody speaks in Arabic, and they don't know what they're saying. Right. So they have conducted raids. They found weapons stashed in many, many mosques, and uh, 
or those that they felt were, were engaged in incitement or weapons uh, storage or other things, they, they are closing them down, which is courageous act. Finally, and you're going to have to let us know where you are next Friday, why would you decide to travel to both uh, Cyprus and Greece? Well, in two days in each and in Israel next week, um, to at the end of the month there's going to be a trilateral meeting of the heads of the three governments, Cyprus, Greece, and Israel. There are many issues, including the discovery of the huge energy deposits near Israel and near Cyprus, and the two of them have a lot in common and can have joint refining and many other things. Greece and Israel have become closer and closer allies, and despite the overthrow of the right-wing government, which was very pro-Israel in Greece and uh, allowed and, and built up the military and other cooperation, uh, and replaced by a leftist government, which has, contrary to most expectations, sustained that very positive relationship. The Israeli Air Force trains in some areas of Greece and um, trains also against the uh, mock-up of the um, um, the S-300 missile defense system. Israel, you know, does not have the strategic depth. They don't have the land mass. So having an island, uh, an uninhabited island, to, to be able to test run things in, uh, for the Air Force is very important. Sure. And the, the relationship between Greece and, and Israel, and especially as the relationship with Turkey deteriorates, that other relationship has improved greatly. Unbelievable. And so we're going, and hopefully we will be able to contribute to the... We're also taking the leaders, uh, going with the leaders of the Greek-American community and of B'nai B'rith, who, who have helped foster this relationship, to um, that it will have ramifications here in building alliances with the Greek-American community. Um, they have a very, very active political arm, and, and as you know, there are many Greek-Americans who have been supportive of Israel, and this is so, it has uh, many ramifications. As usual, we have no idea, and when I say we, I mean people like myself, have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. And we make our own evaluations, we have no clue how many different components there are. And we should note also that Florida, California passed anti-BDS, boycott divestment sanction legislation this week, and we're looking to many more. There, uh, I think we're up to about 30 states now that have or are in the process of um, and we want tighter uh, anti-BDS uh, legislation as we see them increase the efforts and expect this year on the campuses especially to see the the, uh, um, the expansion of those efforts. Uh, we're also going to watch in the coming weeks what the relationship with Turkey, how that moves. Right. It's, it's, um, you know, there have been very positive developments, but he's a mercurial guy and we don't know but but his latest statements were very positive about how turkey needs israel so there is good news that there are positive developments but we've got to be very alert now people have to understand and, and most of all is what you said and why we do this in friday morning so they should talk to their kids about it explain to them what's happening it's their world and their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren Thank you, Mr. Homeline. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll it speak. It was my pleasure. Have a good Shabbos. We'll speak, I guess, from somewhere around the world next week. Athens, I think. Athens, Greece. That should be exciting. It'll be Greek to everyone, right? <laughs> As usual. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Uh, 22 minutes after 8 o'clock. It's Friday at JMNAM on this Arab Shabbos Parshas by Aero with candle lighting time at 426.